Good morning. Scripture reading this morning is from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. The word of the Lord reads this way. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. Hopefully that means more at the end of this message as we begin our Advent time together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. As we're going to see today, we have the word in flesh amongst us. Father, as we take a moment at the beginning of the season to reflect on what our brothers and sisters before us experience in this time, looking forward to the coming of this king, Father, I pray that you would work in us in such a way, the anticipation of which they had, and Father, certainly the anticipation of which we have for the future coming. Father, please let your word land on us this season as we reflect on something that's all too commonplace, that has lost its appropriate spectacle in exchange for the spectacle of anything else that's happening around us in our culture. Father, let us remember the true magic of Christmas as we look at this baby in a manger. And Father, we look at what this baby came into. And Father, what this baby challenges for us today. Father, we love you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see today is that darkness hangs heavy. Darkness hangs heavy. As we enter into Advent, as we read all of these pronouncements that we've seen of the coming of this king, of the, the birthing of this baby, the coming of Jesus. We all know the ending. It's easy for us to forget or to get maybe even just caught up in the, in the sense and magic and wonder of the season and forget what all these pronouncements meant. It's not just the coming of Jesus. But it came to a time and a place, a context, and certainly in our Bible reading, you should have the good practice of going back to their town and seeing what the scripture meant to them before we bring it through and interpret it for us. Because when all of these pronouncements of the coming of this king came, and whatever gospel you read it in, it was dark. It was dark. Darkness hangs heavy. Four thousand years of darkness we have seen. It's been 4,000 years since the promise in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman would someday come. And 400 years, particularly now, of silence. The last time God's people heard him speak was in Malachi, 400 years ago. And what we call the intertestamental period between the end of the writings of the Old Testament and the beginning of the Gospels, the coming of Christ, 400 years of silence. There were no more minor prophets to come around and shake things up. Where was God? It was quiet. 
We've spent a good bit of time today in Malachi, starting in chapter 2, verse 17. God says, you've wearied the Lord with your words. Well, you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in him. Or by saying, where is the God of justice? The people felt the darkness back in Malachi's day. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, gone. The Assyrians took the northern kingdom and the Babylonians have walked off the southern kingdom. Judgment has come. Siri and southern kingdom. Where is God? Where is justice? Where is evil getting to win? Why do these bad things happen to God's people? And so these questions pervade for them and for us. But what does he promise then in chapter 3 of Malachi? Behold, I will send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be a pleasing fragrance to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Goes on to say later in verse 13, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. And you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said of me, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed and evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. This is the sense that the people of God have in Malachi. They look around and they say, it's vain to serve God. I'm not sure why we follow Yahweh. What's the profit of keeping his law or walking around as if we're in mourning before the Lord? This God of armies, this Lord of hosts, where is he? Why do we serve him? If he really was the Lord of armies, why would we be cast down? It seems as if the arrogant are blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they are not just doing well. They go so far as to put God to the test. Straight blasphemy before the Lord. And it, they escape. How is it that they can spit in the face of God and escape? You think about a people who are waiting. This is their last cry. 400 years. The Jews are waiting. And what happens after Malachi? Well, 
It wouldn't be long before Alexander the Great would come sweeping through. He'd bring Hellenism along with him. And not much later, the Seleucids from Syria would sweep through and they would take over the temple. They would take it over. They would outlaw absolutely fully all of Judaism. No more sacrifices. In fact, we're going to go so far as to say not just outlawed, but on pain of death. Even more than that, how about instead of your sacrifices, we turn it into a pagan temple and offer our sacrifices? It would take 30 years of this before the Maccabean revolt would, would come around and lead to the purifying of the temple and the priestly sacrifices would begin again. This is where Hanukkah comes from. This is why they celebrate that in remembrance of this. Well, they have the temple back. Why are we still being ruled? Because then here come the Romans. We get independence. We get our temple back. Romans come through. When Pompey comes into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he walks straight into the most holy place. The greatest sacrilege you could do at the temple. While the Greeks had brought their intellectual and cultural mark into the world, the Romans took that and built on it with their political prowess. Roman government, organization, law, money, taxation, their culture, their religion, or religions, their army, and demands were absolutely everywhere. How can we be the people of God in our place under God's rule? It was Roman peace, Pax Romana, that ruled the land. And it was enforced, this peace, by arms. Oppression was everywhere. For the Jews and for everyone. Rome's thumb was everywhere. Morality? Abysmal. It was as if in Judges, every man did as he saw fit. And so what are we left with? Fear around every corner. Even in the promise of great security, Pax Romana. Roman peace by Roman armies. It's kind of darkness is a real thing. It's a visceral kind of thing. Well, you can cut with a knife. You can feel it pressed down on you. The same kind of darkness that would lead Zechariah to pray this in Luke chapter 2, verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That's the cry that he has. You can hear him in the time of Jesus, right? Praying for these things still. This has been the darkness that has been held over them. Zechariah prays for salvation from enemies. That's been the cry since after David. As Assyria and Babylon would rise up and come through the land, 
in their different ways. Their enemies were all around them. Why? Because God's people were never faithful to put them all down back all the way in Joshua. Judgment comes. Lord, save us from our enemies, Zechariah cries. And 5 BC, when Jesus is here, he prays for mercy that was promised to his fathers, like all the way back to Abraham. Father, have mercy on us and remember your holy covenant, verse 72. Remember your holy covenant that you have called us to be your people and you have made a way for us. Remember the oath that you swore to our father Abraham to grant us so that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, when you save us from our enemies, we might serve him without fear. That we might serve him in holiness. That we might serve him in righteousness. And so I think the challenge as we consider darkness here and whether it hangs heavy is that we have all experienced darkness. We all know darkness like this. We were born into it. We're all experiencing it in some fashion even now. When we think about the darkness that we were born into, that we come from, that we experience right now, you have this type of longing that Zechariah has for deliverance, for freedom, to serve without fear, to serve in holiness, to serve in righteousness. You see, when we talk about the great expectations and the expectations that come with Christmas, the expectation that comes from having a God-man as king, it's so that we can live this way. This desire is what should be pushing us. This is what we should be trying to claim, trying to hold on to, trying to look for. Do you want to serve him without fear and holiness and in righteousness? Are you longing for your enemies to be put down? Because the darkness that we typically experience is just the oppressive evil, whether it's from the world or from ourselves. When evil seems to succeed and is blessed and is rewarded and is praised, when all that is good and right and true and beautiful is despised and trashed and scorned, when death comes all too early for some and all too slowly and painfully for others, when family is torn apart over evil, when lives are bound with chains and debt and alcohol and pornography and rage and bitterness and abuse and adultery and abortion and remorse from it, among a host of other things. These demons, this darkness, runs for generations, tearing down, destroying, whether it be from the personal, your own life, to then your family and your family's families, to churches, to cities, to nations. And this type of darkness is a thing to fear. And if you look outside, it seems as if it's a time to fear. This darkness is something that we know and we are intimately familiar with in some fashion. 
Do you want deliverance from that? Do you want to be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate you? Do you want to be delivered from yourself? From a heart that is deceitful and wicked and thinks it God so that you might serve him, the one true God, without fear and holiness and righteousness. As we look outside today, people are covered in darkness, and most of them are comfortable there. They don't want to be saved from it. It's interesting, though, as we look at this time, as we look at this proclamation of this Messiah that is getting ready to be made as light breaks into the world. It's not the first time that God's people have had to wait in darkness and in silence. Yes, it's been 4,000 years since Eden. It's been 400 years since Malachi spoke. But we think back to the Hebrews in Egypt. They were enslaved for 400 years. From the time of Joseph to the time that we see in Exodus, particularly the oncoming of Moses, God was silent. We see these great covenants throughout Genesis, this building up of this patriarchal family. You see them go into Egypt, and we see them explode in numbers. But where is God? His people are oppressed. They are in shackles. They are being beat down. We're seeing their firstborn be killed off just to try to control their numbers. God's people have been in darkness before. And so today, as we look forward to all the good stuff that's coming, we have to start with this darkness. Where is the darkness in your life? Where is the darkness in your life? Where's the darkness around your life? It's real. It's painful. It's hard. And if you stay in darkness, it ends in death. A Christian, is it hard for you to remember what darkness was? Maybe more importantly, is it hard to see its effects in and around you still? as you await the quitting of this body of flesh. Can you see the effects of darkness as you are still bound in this flesh? Because the question for us then is, might the hope and joy of Christmas be lost on you if you don't realize the light that is needed or the light that you have? There's always this push in Christmas to make it seem as magical as possible. Magical as possible. Whether it's as parents and trying to make sure our kids get all the experiences, whether it's by cutting down your tree or pulling out the plastic one, whether it's by having all of the ornaments in the tree look the same or it being like uh, joy threw up over the tree, you know, all manifold colors. Whether it's how you handle Santa Claus or how you spend time with the in-laws, we're always looking for one more thing to add to the calendar to make the season better. 
add a little more magic, make it feel a little bit more closer, make it feel like family. It's a challenge that we have. We have this hole that we keep trying to pile stuff in to make it feel gooder. (laughs) Christmas is magical. It's magical, despite you humbuggers out there. But it's not because of Santa, Rudolph, Frosty, hot chocolate, snow, sledding, sweaters, fireplaces, books, coffee, ham, peppermint, icicles, or Michael Buble. It's because we know that light is coming. That's what makes it magical. And while all those things are amazing and good, and I have plenty more to list, I happen to love Christmas a lot, that's not what makes it magical. What makes it magical is that we know light is coming, and light is brighter when we know darkness first. So church, if you're heading into this season on full steam out of the holidays, that's good. But don't miss the darkness. We can't ignore it. It's around us. It's real. One of the fascinating things to me in this, in this story, I don't want to belabor, but I'll mention in passing, is that the messengers come to shepherds. The angelic host comes to shepherds. Shepherds who aren't allowed to even give testimony in court at this time because they're so untrustworthy. They're so low. And the first evangelists we see who are the ones who give testimony, the shepherds. After they leave Mary, they go and tell everyone, and they're amazed. The shepherds knew the darkness. They saw the light, and they went forth and gave testimony. Church, if you're going to give testimony to the light this season, you have to have been sitting in the field in the dark. For some of you, you're still in the dark. Some of you still feel the darkness in your own heart. Light is here. Know that it's darkness. Name it for what it is. For those of you that are believers and have seen the light, remember what darkness is. Remember what you have been saved from. Know why this light matters. Why this magic is here. The second thing I want you to see is that the Lord hears The Lord hears. Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and going forward. It says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The Lord hears. He's not missing. Despite the cries from Malachi and the people there, what do they say? We call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Will God hear us, even in evil? Yes, he will. Verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention, and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. 
Let me read this again for you. Malachi, after their complaints, and he says he will send someone. After they have said, where is God? The arrogant, they're blessed. The evildoers, they prosper. They spit in God's face and they still escape. It says, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. Christian, you speak to one another about what you know. Because what they do, the Lord paid attention. The Lord heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. God says, verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then, once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The Lord hears. He paid attention. He heard them. He remembered. Same thing that we see from Exodus, right? The cry went up. God heard. God remembered his covenant. But the question then is, okay, awesome. This is what we needed. Once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. But how will he do this? How will he do this? How will he judge and save us? How will he separate the righteous from the wicked? How will he judge us yet save us? Chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act says the Lord of armies. Verse 4. <clears throat> Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Sinai for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. But he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's how the Old Testament ends, right there. A promise of a coming one. But catch this, church. You want to know whether or not God really heard, right? I'm telling you, he, he did it in Exodus. I'm telling you that he says it here. How do we know what is the evidence that God actually heard? The evidence of God hearing them is when he sends the Lord Jesus Christ that's what he says is the evidence. That's what he says is the evidence. He's, he's heard. Behold, the day's coming. I will do this. Remember the law of Moses. Behold, I will send you Elijah, a prophet. And he, this coming one, will turn the hearts of the fathers. 
There's one coming. That's the evidence. If we want to know whether or not God heard, if we want to know whether or not he remembers covenant with his people, all we have to do is look for the coming one that will do that. And so can you understand the anticipation that the Jews had in light of seeing Assyria run rampant, seeing Babylon run rampant, seeing the temple destroyed, rebuilt, the Greeks coming through, the Seleucids coming in, pagan sacrifices offered in the temple, rebellion, then the Romans come through, and we're under oppression, and we're saying, did God actually hear us? Malachi said he did. Malachi said that he was going to come. Where is he? How do we get freed from this so that we might serve without fear? So that we might serve in holiness? So that we might serve in righteousness? It's a long time waiting for the evidence that God heard us. It's been 4,000 years since the promise of the seed of the woman and 400 since Malachi spoke. And so how do you do with waiting? You put yourself here. You put yourself in the seat of Simeon who's promised that he wouldn't die until he saw the Lord. When is it coming? How long will it be? How do you do waiting? What does patience look like in your life? I was thinking about patience and how to get it, besides praying for patience, which if you want to do that, I would probably wait till you know, January, um, if I were you. It's a dangerous prayer. How do you get patience? What is it that tests patience? Why do you run out of patience? It really becomes a question, I think, of asking well, what rules you? What rules you? Because that seems to be what burns out at least your patience. We often talk about emotions, and some of you may think that that's fair or not. I don't know. I don't want to just throw that word out and let it be what it is. Let's talk about what emotions we're talking about. Especially in light of what rules you. When I look at people who run out of patience... I'm looking for what rules them, what emotions are running them. It could be desire. That's a huge one. It's a relatively ambiguous one, unless you look at James. It could be desire. It could be lust for things. It could be materialism and a lot of different things. But let's go a little deeper. It could be selfishness, a good old-fashioned selfishness, something that no adult struggles with because it's purely an infantile, childlike emotion, right? Don't be selfish, child. When you're mature, you'll no longer be selfish, right? None of us struggle with that. Could be anger. Could be the red-hot anger. Or it could be the cold anger of bitterness. Just because you don't turn red and have steam coming out of your ears doesn't mean that your heart isn't ice cold and cold anger bitterness could be resentment resentment over a slight over someone sinning against you you've held on to it you've not talked to them and it rules you for years and finally you either explode and 
someone we find out what that is, or you go on in death and in darkness. Those things can rule you for generations. As it turns your heart, it turns your family's heart, it turns your children's heart, it turns their family's heart. And all of a sudden, three years three generations away, no, our family doesn't do that because this. What else can rule us? It could be hunger. Some of us eat our emotions. I, I agree with you. Others of you, your, um, your, emotion, your, your, your emotions eat you. So that would be who I would call hangry. Um, all patience, gone, if you need a sandwich. And I've been hungry before, but I, can, I usually fast a lot. Um, so I don't, I don't relate to those people. Some of us eat our emotions. And some of us, our emotions eat us. And we can't be cool unless we're full. Some of us, it's greed. Good old-fashioned materialism. Money. Stuff. Comfort. Entitlement. We expect or deserve things. And if we don't have them, then we have no patience. How would that go for the children of God? They have been promised these things. It's in their birthright to have them, and yet they don't have them. And so how do they treat God? And I want to be fair when we're talking about patience. I want to end with this one. It could be just pure desperation. Pure desperation. As we look at people who are truly oppressed, who have nothing, the desperation to get whatever you need in order to survive, in order to make it to the next day. We can fall into this very easily when we live from paycheck to paycheck, which is the majority of our country and probably the majority of this church. That's scary. It's hard. You can lose a lot of patience because you're just trying to make it. There's a lot of things that can lead to us losing patience, but what does Scripture call us to all over the place? Wait and trust. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. For those who are walking in the Spirit, patience is their fruit. And so even when darkness is here, even when evildoers prosper, spit in the face of God, and are not brought down, they escape. Can you be patient in the face of that? In our life, with you're a believer, and you've seen light, and you've been delivered, you are free from fear. We still wait. We still wait. The next thing I want you to see is that light breaks in. Light breaks in. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. Back to our text. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now to be clear, when we're talking about being fearless this Christmas, I'm not talking about this, this verse. 
The great fear that they had is because they're sitting in a mountainside with sheep and the heavens open up to the armies of heaven. That's scary. And they were filled with great fear, understandably. Fear not, all right? We're not here for you in that way. We're here for you with good news, okay? So that's what he's saying here. The fearlessness I'm talking about when we're talking about the coming weeks is over the darkness that's looming. That is a fear that should be had and we need to have it no more. So for these here, we have the angel breaks in, light breaks in. It says, fear not, for behold, I bring you what? Good news of great joy for all people. J.C. Ryle says this in his expository thoughts on this passage. He says, we need not wonder at these words. The spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away. The way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. The head of Satan was about to be bruised. Liberty was about to be proclaimed to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. The mighty truth was about to be proclaimed that God could be just and punish sin, and yet, for Christ's sake, justify the ungodly sinner. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. The knowledge of God was no longer to be confined to the Jews, but to be offered to the whole Gentile world. The days of paganism were numbered. The first stone of God's kingdom was about to be set up. If this was not good tidings, there never were tidings that deserved the name. Amen? Amen. In the face of silence, in the face of darkness, joy has come. Verse 11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, Deliverer and King. Christ, Deliverer, Lord, King. The God-man, this baby, is God in the flesh. How crazy it is to hear this message in the first place. And even more so for at the end, an angel to say, a baby born to you is Christ the God. You catch that? You want to, we're going to talk about the godness of Jesus in some of the coming weeks. But if there's any clearer passage as to the godness, the deity of Jesus, it's here. A baby has been born to you in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the God. And so the question for us has been, how can fearlessness and great joy come into this world? Well, it's not only because the baby will be a savior, but because he will be the Lord. Christ the Lord. How much does this matter? Well, in John, who writes his gospel, to help illustrate Jesus as God, specifically to the world. We see the encounter in chapter 20 with Thomas. Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. The next Sunday, eight days later, his disciples were inside again 
and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the Holy One of Israel, the God-man. And God tabernacled among us. He came and put on flesh. Be God with us, Emmanuel. We see the promise of Malachi come true in the transfiguration. This promised one. Remember the law of Moses. I will send Elijah to you. Mark chapter 9, verse 2. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. He's here. Light has come. This is what we mean when we say Merry Christmas. Light has come. But who is it Merry for? Who has he come for? Who can actually be fearless and joyful? It seems in Malachi he was promised to be a terror to many. <clears throat> Our text in Luke 2 tells us, verse 12, This will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, the armies, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This clues us in as to who gets to be fearless and joyful. Who gets peace? And what does this peace look like? The angels are saying that God will bring peace for men on whom his favor rests. There's an emphasis on God, not man. It is those whom God chooses rather than those who choose God of whom the angels speak. That's who we're talking about. And what is the peace then? Well, peace, if you want it, looks like this. It means peace between God and people. The healing of the estrangement that is caused by human evil. One commentator says this. Then suddenly there appeared a great company of the heavenly host, the angelic army of heaven. But this army that's often associated biblically with those who fight for God are not declaring war. Instead, they are singing a song of peace. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. This announcement of peace on earth is not the Pax Romana brought about by imperial decree, nor is it the cessation of warfare between rival groups. This peace is the transcendent peace which brings an end to the conflict between men and God. To those who hear the message, 
of the coming of the Messiah, the war is over. Peace has become incarnated in the Prince of Peace who came to reconcile us with God. That's the peace we get. That's the peace that we see with Christmas. That's the peace that we see with salvation. If you don't feel peace, I don't know that you know the Prince of Peace. This is what he came for and his army with it. One fascinating thing I want to close with that I found this week helps us understand what's at stake. Today's message is relatively simple. Darkness is everywhere. Light has broken in. You can read 1 John. talks about that a whole lot. Are you in the darkness or are you in light? This isn't too dissimilar to the last message that I did in Hebrews when we're talking about salvation. Are you in the darkness or are you in light? Christian, if you're in the light, do you remember darkness? Do you know where your friends and family are in darkness? Do you remember that? Are you looking forward to the putting off of the flesh and the darkness that still hinders you? Are you at peace with God? That's the message. But understand that we don't just sit there and let it happen. This Jesus that is coming is going to show things as they are. When light comes in, it reveals what was in the dark. It's a very important thing for me to walk around my new house at night with one of these. There's stuff everywhere. There's tile everywhere. There's walls that are opened up. We're having fun. It's dangerous at night. We need light to reveal what is there. As I was reading different passages in Luke chapter 2, our chapter through our text, further down in verse 34, we see the encounter with Simeon. And Simeon says this to, to Mary after he sees Jesus. I've never caught this. All right, you see his, his pronouncement before. We see Mary's song, which we're going to sing during communion today. I've seen all that. I've not seen this. Verse 34, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. He's a baby. He's come to save. But this angelic army that sings peace between God and man is for those who are his. This God-man baby still remains the head of that army. That army will be opened up on the day of the Lord in the future. And between now and then, the preaching, the word read, the rebuke and instruction from your brother and sister is about this word, this incarnate word. This child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. When we think about light, it exposes everything. Christmas is a time when hearts will be revealed. 
from what you love to what you wait patiently for. When the light comes, darkness is dispelled. And as we examine different aspects of the incarnation over the coming weeks, one thing it will do is that this light king of heavenly armies has come to deliver his people. And his people will be revealed as darkness is torn away. So as you look at this babe in a manger, you see the God-man who will give his very life for that cause. He will receive glory. Glory to God in the highest. He will bring peace on earth, peace among those on whom his favor rests. God gets the glory. We get the peace. We can be fearless. We can be joyful. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. This light has come. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you have come. Father, you have shown the evidence that you heard, that you remember by sending your Son in the flesh. The humiliation that comes of God becoming man. And Father, we look forward to the exaltation that will come. When all things are placed under his feet. The Father, in the meantime, as we look forward to this season, here at the beginning of the month, I pray that as we consider Advent, the coming of the King, we will be mindful of the darkness that we're in. Let us take a moment to pause at the beginning. And then, Father, as we've done that faithfully, let us run fearlessly. Let us run joyfully from this day on, knowing that our King has come, the Lord of armies, to declare peace between us and you. Father, so much as that we are in Christ, let us treasure the advent, the coming of the King. Father, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.